0: word. I pray that you'd be with me and help me to um, be faithful in preaching uh, preaching what your spirit um, has for us in the text. Um, I pray that you would help me to to remain focused on your heart and on preaching your gospel. Um, I pray, Lord, that anything from me would uh, would would not uh, be present in the message today, Lord, that, that it would just all be of your spirit. And I pray for the folks who are here today who are here in your word. I pray that their hearts would be uh, fertile soil, that they would hear from you, that they would know you more, that they would be um, closer to Christ as a result of hearing your word preached. In Jesus' name, amen. I am going to lower this a little bit. Um, a couple of years ago, I... You can turn these monitors off if they're feeding back. That's um, A couple of years ago, I read a book uh, entitled Unbroken, um, they made a movie out of this one. Has anybody – it was Feeding Back. That's the only reason I said it. Um, the, they made a movie out of this, this particular book. It's the story of, uh, of a fellow named uh, Frank Zamperini, who was um, actually an Olympic uh, runner, and he ended up serving on a bomber crew uh, in the Pacific Theater, and he, uh, he ended up, like his, his plane, they were on a search mission looking for downed pilots. And their engines failed and they crashed. And he and two other guys ended up on a raft in the Pacific Ocean. And um, if you watch this movie, the book is, I have not seen the movie. My understanding is the book is significantly better. Um, Frank Zamperini uh, holds the world record for the longest amount of time on a raft in the ocean. Um, and, and I think from the beginning of his ordeal to the end of his ordeal, he lost the majority of his body weight. He nearly died in the process, but there, there are months and I I say months without exaggeration where he is, is in this rubber life raft and he describes it, you know, ocean as far as you can see and they're thirsty and they're starving and, um, every once in a while, something will find them that they don't want to have find them like sharks. Um, and I think, if I'm rem- remembering correctly, I read two similar books from different uh, soldiers. Um, but if I remember correctly, he he like was was attacked by a shark and he managed to kill it, and he he ate a whole lot of it before <laughs> um, before uh, before he kind of tossed the rest out. And he would catch birds and eat them. And when it rained, he'd try and get as much water as he could because there's nothing to drink. And there was one point where a Japanese hero found them, and he was strafed. By a zero, and like his his raft was shot up, and he managed to repair it without sinking and he and his partner, the other guy with him, they floated in the in the ocean for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, and eventually like like crossed the Pacific and ended up on a Japanese occupied island where they were captured, um, which is a frying pan fire kind of situation, although I guess there's only so long you can sit in a boat before you're definitely done. Um, But they were captured, and he ended up a prisoner of war and and is transferred from camp to camp and eventually ends up in uh, Japan at a a prison camp and nearly starves to death there. He actually, um, right at the end of his life, he is almost dead Um, like because he had a, a malnutrition issue that was making his limbs swell up, and he talks about watching people die of the same thing, and he knew he had about a week left, and he was liberated. I mean, just like right at the end. Um, and and in this book he goes home and like the the experience of being a prisoner of war kind of messes him up and he becomes an alcoholic until he he becomes a believer um, at a Billy Graham crusade which is I and I cannot recommend this book highly enough it's a fantastic book um, but as the reason I'm talking about it and the reason I'm starting with this is um, we're in Peter and we're working our way through this book and and. As I was looking at, at sort of um, what Peter's talking about, Peter's talking about people who are living surrounded, like, by a sea of, of dangerous stuff. Um, they're living in a time when Christians were, um, were, were persecuted, um, specifically the heaviest persecution that was probably taking place during this time. This is right before Nero started arresting and killing people, so there's that. Um, he would set people on fire to light his banquets at night. Uh, he would, uh, tie them in bags with animal skins and like feed them to wild animals. And Nero was a bad guy before Nero really ramped it up. It was illegal to be a Christian and they could come and like if a neighbor decided, well, that guy's probably a Christian, they could sue you. And if they won their lawsuit and demonstrated that you were a believer, they could take your possessions. Like, so people had a lot of incentive to hunt down Christians, like, cause you got paid um, and And Christians were oftentimes losing their homes or their businesses or their livelihoods um, sometimes they were arrested, sometimes they were you know put in different like difficult situations. It was a hard time to make matters worse um, this church group that Peter's addressing is dealing with false teachers and these are people who are coming in and they are teaching that Jesus is not coming back. there is no heaven, there is no eternity like Take what he was teaching, but also just go and do whatever you want. Eat, drink, and be merry. You know, sleep around, do whatever. Like, it all doesn't matter because Jesus isn't coming back. And and I, I'm bringing up unbroken as my beginning because these are people who are surrounded by like an ocean of problems, right? And it's got to be kind of hopeless sometimes, right? Like where you, you look around you and you think everything is screwed up and everything is bad and everything is is broken and nothing is going to get better. And, and there are days, honestly, I'll talk to folks um, in ministry around the world and you'll look at some of the just crazy nonsense that's happening within the church. Um, and and you'll look at it and you'll say, you know, God, where are you? It seems like we're stranded. Like it seems like wh- what's going to happen here? Where, where's our rescue? And you look around, you say, God, where are you? Why aren't you coming in and fixing this? And it just like some days, it does feel like looking out across the sea, and and there's nothing coming. Y'all know what I'm talking about. I. Uh, we're we're gonna get into that as we go. Um, but but understand, Peter. This little section we're gonna look at is Peter offering assurance. He's saying, "Listen, I know it looks bleak. I know it looks like, you know, nothing is going to come out right. I know it looks like God may have abandoned us. I know it looks like." The danger from these false teachers is gonna like overtake our churches or, um, that the persecution we're suffering is gonna crush us. I know it looks like stuff is bad, but don't worry. So as we dive in, a little bit of background. Um, Peter is talking to Christians in Asia Minor. Um, these are probably like almost all Gentile converts. There's probably some Jewish folks sprinkled in. Um, but Peter has a habit in this, in this setting of leaning heavily on, uh, on, like, like Gentile specific language and Gentile specific examples, this particular text is the one big exception, and we'll talk about why as we go. Um, there is is—I told you about this heresy that's going on, the, the Jesus isn't coming back thing specifically. The text from last week is gonna play into this week, and we're actually gonna look at that real quick. It was three verses, it only took me like two hours to preach it. Um, But there were also false prophets amongst the people. And he's referring to the Old Testament amongst the Jewish people. Just as there will be false prophets amongst you, they will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into dispute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. So Peter offers up this thing like, hey, look, there are, like, even in the days of the Old Testament, these false teachers were there. And so don't be surprised that there are false teachers and false prophets with you now. Don't be surprised that this is present now. It is not a thing that has gone away. It's not something that's new. Um, it is a thing that we should expect and is ongoing. And he says in the last sentence here is why we're really looking at this. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. Meaning, all right, guys there's all this nonsense happening there are these people who are exploiting the church there are these people teaching false doctrine in order to pad their pockets um and that's still today right you can turn on the tv and there are guys like faking healings and there are guys preaching nonsense like oh if you just give money you'll go to heaven or you'll plant this seed offering and god will pay it back to you a hundredfold and you'll be rich by next month and All this other stuff. And they're just taking advantage of the flock. They're stealing from the church. They're using God's name to enrich themselves. And Peter closes out this last little bit that we were looking at with, don't worry, they're going to pay. Right? Um, And so their destruction has not been sleeping. And then we move into Peter's justification for this previous sentence. And this is the beginning of what we're looking at today. We're going to be going through verse 10. 4. If God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, we're going to do this bit by bit because there's a lot going on here, okay? Um, for if, right there, that's the only if in this sentence. Got it? Like there's going to be a whole bunch of clauses with ifs because Greek is a messed up language, it's really hard to read. Right? Like, I'm going to tell you, this is the one time if shows up that's actually in the text. Every other time it's added, because otherwise it would be a nonsense sentence in English. Right? So they have to kind of like fiddle with it a little bit to make it so that it works in English. But the idea here is this is a collection of ifs. It's a collection of clauses that points to a truth. Now, he's going to tell us three Old Testament stories. This one... Is basically sir not appearing in the story. This is actually not in the Old Testament. Um, but it 's probably the case that he is referring to Genesis six, right? Genesis six is this spot and and it is oh, there's so much time wasted arguing about this 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 couple of verses because it 's a sticky passage, right? Um, during this period, the, the intertestamental period, right before Jesus shows up, there's a lot of writing about what's going on in Genesis 6. And I'm going to summarize it for you real quick. The sons of God found the daughters of men attractive. And they basically start marrying them. And then they have children who are Nephilim. And God saw this and said, I can't put up with people this long. We're going to shorten their lifespans. Right? And there are people who will read this, and during this period, the Jewish intertestamental like rabbis would look at this and they would say, "The sons of God; those are angels, and they were marrying people, and their children were supernatural, and they were giants because Nephilim can sometimes be translated as giants. That's a; uh, it also can be translated as great warriors or like heroic people, and a whole bunch of other stuff. Is really one of those passages you will look at and you're like, I don't really know what to do with this." Um, it probably refers to people who were in the direct line of um, of Seth like uh, and and were considered to be amongst like sort of the the in crowd like god 's people and they began to rebel by like marrying outside of like the the people who were god 's people and then they began having children who were you know remarkable and heroes, but they were like rebelling against God and God gets angry and response to them, But at the time, the read was, these are angels, they're giving birth to giants. Um, and so there were a lot of like Jewish people at the time who believed this was the case. And if you have one of those Bibles, it's got the Catholic books, you know the ones like Enoch and Maccabee and books that are not included in the canon of Scripture almost always because they're written by somebody who, like, it, there's a title, hey, this was written by Enoch, except it wasn't. Um, And so like books that had fake names on them generally, well, never, like just period, never ended up in the Bible. You know, the like it's called a pseudoepigraphia, um, pseudoepigraphic. Um, And so there are all these books where they'll talk about this, and these are all things that have been kind of rejected from the scriptures because they're not scripture. But Peter references, and he says, hey. The angels rebelled against God, and this is something that we know probably happened. Well, we know happened. Like, we know because there are other spots in the Old Testament where it references it. And Jesus talks about it, and Paul talks about it. So, like, we have all kinds of reference to the idea that in the beginning, the angels rebelled. And he's saying, listen, God's own angels, these, like, glorious creatures who are awesome and amazing and powerful and exist only to worship God, when they sinned against God, God didn't spare them. Right? Like, God's holiness, his, his holiness, his purity, and his justice is so, like, dominant. Like, his holiness is his fundamental feature. Like, it is the, the, the dominant core feature of who God is. And so, like, his holiness demanded that when the angels rebelled that they would be punished. And he puts them in chains in the darkness. The word there is Tartarus, in case you ever come across it in Jeopardy. I'm here to help you. Uh, Tartarus is a word, like, from amongst Greek uh, uh, culture. And in mythology, Tartarus was the place where the gods were thrown in chains, like the ones who who were, like, kicked out of Olympus or whatever. Um, and so Peter is kind of pulling out this word so he's speaking their language, you know. He's contextualizing it, for contemporizing it for them. He says, listen, the angels were put in this dungeon in preparation for judgment that's coming. Like, God, his... Own angels kicked him out, locked him up. And so, like, the idea here is these false prophets, these false teachers, these people who are robbing the church, judgment's coming. Now, do you think God's going to let them get away with it if his own angels didn't get away with it? Right? Like, if his own angels don't get to do this stuff, like, do you think he's going to let people rebel against him and rob his people? Um, And so like, it starts out with this, and it's probably Genesis 6 he's sort of referencing. It doesn't mean that this is what happened. It means it's what he's using as as his illustration. Um, We go on. If, and there's no if there. Okay, so this is an addition because it makes sense because otherwise it would be um, to be held for judgment. He did not spare the ancient world when he brought flood on its ungodly people. Um, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. Now, the reference here is, listen, if he didn't spare the angels, if the ancient world rebelled against him, and at the time, like, there's um, a lot of tradition, like Jewish tradition amongst the rabbis that's not scripturally supported, but there's this idea that Noah spent about 100 years preaching to folks, like going around and saying, hey, knock it off. God's going to kill all of you if you don't repent. And everybody just ignored him, right? um the, the, it's not easy to pull out of the scriptures like it's just not there but like peter is referencing this tradition he says listen noah was out there he was preaching righteousness by his own behavior building the ark he's preaching righteousness um and he was saved but everybody else wasn't i talked with a lot of people over the years who will say well wait a minute um why is it fair that god judged all of these people and wiped them out it's like well If he didn't spare the angels, he's not going to spare the world, right? And really the how is it fair is how is it fair that anybody was forgiven, right? How is it fair that anybody gets mercy? How is it fair that anybody, anybody? um, We have a running thing in our house uh, sometimes where one of the kids will walk out of school with candy, like a gift from a teacher, And that one child who has candy, everybody else looks and says, What's the word, phrase? It's not fair. Oh, it's almost like you've said that before. (laughs) It's not fair. He got candy and I didn't, or she got candy and I didn't. I always say, Do you want me to take it away from her? (laughs) Yes, of course. Because we should all get punished equally. In reality, some people get grace, right? Some people are forgiven. Some people are saved. In this case, Noah was saved because, like, Noah, Noah's obedient. Noah was, like, God's guy. Was Noah perfect? Absolutely not. Right? Um, and we're gonna get to a little more in depth as to why that matters. Um, but God offers mercy on some folks and He pours out His judgment on everyone else. Um, because, like, God's holiness it's like a fire, right? Um, there's a great, uh, actually, if you talk to, to Marla, she's got photos because this time of year, how many years ago? When Scott was six. So like four years ago? <laughs> um, when Scott was six, this time of year, he was, he was burned. They were throwing gas on a fire, I guess. And, and that didn't work out well. And he got he got really significant burns. Like it flashed against him and burned his skin and burned his ear and, and he was he was he was injured pretty badly. Some of y'all were here and remember this. Like and she's got photos of his whole head wrapped in gauze and and the damage associated with that. Because fire is really not very discerning. Right? Anything that is there that is not fire gets eaten by fire. Right? Fire is bad. Um, in this case, God's holiness. He is so holy and so fierce that it consumes. Um, We see a a really positive example of this when Christ is walking in a crowd of people and the woman who's been bleeding for 12 years or 20 years, 12 I think, walks up and touches him. And by Jewish law, it would make him unclean, but Christ's holiness is so dominant that it, it makes her clean and heals her. Like because God's holiness, you can't get God's holiness dirty. It makes everything else clean. Right, And because of that, when we sin, when we rebel, when we when we push back against God's design for our lives and the world around us, when we choose wicked, when we indulge our sin, when we injure the people around us or take advantage of them or whatever, when we deny Christ, when we pick our own way, like all of this stuff, God's holiness is a fire that consumes that. And that's one of the central premises that runs with this. And what Peter is saying is, listen, God's holiness is there. And if these people are preaching wrong and they're taking advantage of his children and they're trying to mislead them. Look, if he, didn't, if he didn't spare the angels, if he didn't spare the world. And then he goes on. If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And so, like, we come across Sodom and Gomorrah finally. And this is a really common chain here. Um, Peter adds the angels, but Noah and Sodom and Gomorrah, this is a sequence that's in, in, in cr- chronological order, right? The angels fell first, and then Noah um, and the flood, and now finally Sodom and Gomorrah. God pours out his wrath on Sodom and Gomorrah and wipes them out. Um, it's a really common thing. And, in fact, actually Christ, when teaching about the coming of the kingdom of God, he uses this example. He uses Noah and um, then, or, yeah, and then Sodom and Gomorrah, like this sequence. And Peter's probably reflecting his teaching to a degree. Um, but God, Peter's saying, listen, God pours his wrath out on Sodom and Gomorrah. He wipes them out. If he does that for them, like when they rebel against him, when they like just pour themselves out into this wickedness, into this like filthy life and everything else, like if God is not sparing these guys, do you think the ones that are troubling you are going to get away with it? And why does this matter? Well, remember, bring it back to the context. This church is sitting on a raft in the ocean, surrounded by what? Like false teachers, persecution, people doing awful things, um, people um, murdering their children if they're not perfect, which is a common practice in the ancient world, was actually demanded by law. If your child was not born perfect, you were responsible to murder it. Um, And if you raised a child who was deformed or had some sort of problem, you could be, like, prosecuted for it. Like, I mean, they're surrounded by wickedness. And I'm guessing that these folks would wake up some days and look around and say, these guys are even in our church, right? They're even in our church. What do we do here? And Peter turns around and says, don't worry, God's watching. Don't worry, God is going to take care of you. Don't worry, um, he hasn't forgotten Um, there's an interesting little line here, and I think it's worth noting, and I'm just going to mention it real quick. Um, made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. One of the things that we find in the Old Testament, there are some very difficult passages in which people are judged or where killing happens or what have you. And usually when you see that kind of thing, what we're seeing is we're seeing like a foretaste of what God's judgment is. And it's always, it's always scary as heck. You with me? Like, like I, the, the very last place I would ever want to end up is in the hands of a God who is angry at me. Like, and, and let's even take that away. A holy God whose holiness consumes like a fire. Like, who, who, who by default makes things clean. Um, it's a scary thing. It's a hard thing. And what Peter's saying here is a reassurance, but it's also a very hard thing. Um, this is the third example. The first three are negative, and then he moves on to, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. Now we're going to hit pause here. So think about Lot for a minute. Anybody know this story well? Like, when you think a Lot, do you think good guy, hero of the faith, pillar of the community, (laughs) holy and beyond reproach? Nope, not at all. So, like, Lot ends up in Sodom because he makes a deal with Abraham and cheats him. But he does. He cheats Abraham and takes, like, the best for himself. He moves to Sodom, which is an awful place where, like, in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, we see where, like, like, these angels show up and, like, the people of the town gathered up to, like, like gang rape them. I mean, it's, it's a pretty rough story. Um, so, so here he is, and he's choosing to live there. Like, he could have lived anywhere else, right? There are seven cities in this valley. He could have lived in a lot of places. He picked Sodom. And so, to a degree really hard to make that okay then after sodom and gomorrah are destroyed he flees into the mountains where he becomes like basically drunk all the time and he spends more or less like a huge chunk of the rest of his life intoxicated and his daughters are like hey we're the last people on earth because everybody else died in that destruction we need kids and so they have kids by their father again lot's not a good guy right he's just not but peter calls him righteous um, and that's really hard to understand. There are two really big things here. Um, the first part that you need to understand is, Lot is not righteous by his own actions. Lot is righteous by what's called imputation. Imputation refers to the fact that everyone who is righteous is righteous because God makes them that way. I I hope I'm a righteous man. I, I, I desire to be a righteous man. But I'm not a righteous man because I've been good and perfect and holy and awesome. If I'm a righteous man, I'm a righteous man because Christ died for my sins and I belong to Christ. And I'm in the process of becoming like Christ. And so God looks at me and sees Christ's righteousness. And on the cross, he looked at Jesus and saw my sin. And Jesus was punished for my sin so I can be righteous. In the case of Lot, Lot is a descendant of Abraham. Lot almost certainly knew of the promise. And so if Lot is righteous, he's righteous because he believed in the promise of a coming Savior. He is righteous because God made him righteous. And then God saves him because Lot's awesome? Absolutely not. He saves him because God is awesome. Because God is merciful. Because God chooses to be glorified by his showing of mercy to people who don't deserve it. In both of the stories here where we see like Noah and Lot, they're both people who are saved because God is far more merciful than he should be. Because no one should have been and he saves them. Um, So then when we get to this like, well, wait a minute, his conscience was tormented day after day. There's actually a tense change here. Where like in the Greek, it's hidden in the English. The tense changes and the tense implies like like it becomes an active tense. And like most commentators will read this and say, well, he was tormented day after day because he put himself in that situation and he felt bad about it. Like and he was conflicted. Anybody ever get in that spot where you like you, you kind of know the right thing and you're conflicted about it? And like you start like like screwing up and you continue to be conflicted about it. And you can't find peace in your soul because like you're so busy doing kind of what you planned on doing and it's not necessarily what God wants. Like that's where this torment is coming from because God didn't let him go. God continued to nudge him and to draw him back. And eventually he brought him out and delivered him because he deserved it. Absolutely not. So we have three negatives. If God judged these people, if God judged the, the angels, if God judged um, the people at time of Noah, if God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, but, and if he rescued Lot, if this is so, and this is the big pivotal, so all of these have been conditional, and here's the core sentence of the entire sermon, right? If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. By the way, the word trials there can also be uh, translated as temptation. It's probably trials is the best read of it, but trials and temptations is sometimes how that's translated. Um, and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the Day of Judgment. He says, listen, God saved you from your sins. He's not going to abandon you now. If God sent Christ to die for you, he's not going to allow the sea to drag you down as you're sitting on the little rubber raft wondering where is he, right? Because he's going to deliver you. He might deliver you into something harder, and then after that into something harder. But ultimately, God hasn't abandoned us. Um, what do we do with that? I, I'm going to draw out a second Corinthians here. This is chapter four. I'm going to do a couple verses, but they're broken up. If you want to go read them in context, or I'm not altering them, but it's a lot of text. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that his all-surpassing power is from God, meaning the treasure, the Holy Spirit, this salvation that we carry around, it's in jars of clay, like cheap jars, this treasure that we have. We carry it around in vessels that are, that are faulty, in us. Um, and all of that grace we receive is from God. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned struck down but not destroyed meaning we face difficulty we face challenge we're pushed we're strained false teachers are all around us people teaching false gospel people leading folks away people tearing down the scriptures people you know using the scriptures to justify all kinds of nonsense that they shouldn't be Um, all of this stuff but we're not broken by it Um, because we do not lose heart. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what on, on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Now, what do we do with that? I'm using Paul to make this point that Peter's drawn out. The world is broken. There are evil people. There are evil people that show up in the church and use Christ for their own ends. There are evil people who abuse the folks around them, that, that subjugate people, that take advantage of them, that, that call it righteous and do wicked things. Like there are evil people everywhere, and we are not abandoned, um, because this life is not all there is, because it may seem like we're going to drown in the today. we're delivered in eternity. And God doesn't abandon us. Peter closes out, this is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and despise authority. And so he closes out with kind of a, these guys who are rebelling against Christ are are in this place. Right? Like it is especially true that they're bringing judgment on themselves. And our job as the church is preach the gospel to them. It is to call them to repentance. Is to be a grace to folks who are 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 as much deserving a punishment as we are, right? Um, this is the first Sunday of the month, and we always do communion on the first Sunday of the month. And and what we're kind of what I wanted to talk about here as we finish up um, is this. And we're going to do communion a little differently today.